Hi, I'm Stacy Jagger. Welcome to the Inspiring Families podcast. Our goal is to help families heal, grow, and thrive by offering encouragement and empowering family members to connect with one another. So we are here today with Amy Alexander. Amy is the co-founder and executive director of the Refuge Center for Counseling in the Nashville area. She's also a well-loved leader in the world of nonprofits. And I'm here today to speak with her about this topic of recovering from domestic violence. You know, Amy, this is a pretty heavy topic. And I'm really going to come at this conversation with a beginner's mind because Many times when this shows up at my office, I will refer out for individual work or I will refer out for a therapeutic separation with the hopes of that couple being able to come back together in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really want to hear from your perspective, the statistics of domestic violence, what you've seen, um, the process of recovery, and then I will just sort of stop you and ask questions along the way if that's okay. Sure. So for today, we're going to be talking specifically about intimate terrorism, which is nuanced and well-defined. So the definition of that is any pattern of behaviors that attempts to control an intimate partner or family member through the use of fear, manipulation, isolation, intimidation, and or physical or sexual violence. So that's what we're talking about today. There are a couple of other power over dynamics that you might see if you're working with couples. And let me pull that up for us today. One is called situational violence. So situational violence is more likely to be bilateral and it's conflict over a particular issue. So it might be every time we talk about our oldest son or every time we talk about money, we both escalate We both get aggressive verbally or physically, but neither one of us would report that we're afraid of the other person. There's mutual violence, and that is two equally coercive controlling partners who both want power in the relationship. They are both violent. They may both be manipulative. And again, one is not more afraid than the other. And then finally, violent resistance, that's enacted to resist intimate terrorism. That's when the person who's been harmed or abused says, I'm not going to take it anymore. And next time they come after me, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to push back. And unfortunately, what happens is now you've got two people with bite marks or scratches and the police come. They're called to the house Mm -hmm. sometimes. And now both parties are arrested for domestic violence because it's difficult or impossible for them to feel out who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. Mm -hmm. And if you are the victim, but you are charged with domestic violence, it can impact your ability to get services. So that's a a challenging thing. But I've heard lately there is a lot of... um, buzzwords in this topic, abuse, narcissism, NPD or narcissistic personality disorder. And I wanted to just take a moment to say that abuse and narcissism are not always related. A diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder doesn't automatically translate to abusive behavior. And those who engage in abuse don't necessarily have narcissistic personality disorder. So Nonetheless, a mental health diagnosis never excuses abusive behavior. Amy, how did you get started in this world and and having a heart for this population? And uh, it it feels like an under-talked-about issue. Am I making that up? 
You're not. And I will always give my yes, if I can, to speak on this topic, whether it be uh, at a church or at a school. I've been presenting on this at Trebekah for 15 years because I think that there are ideas or stereotypes around who is an abuser, who gets uh-huh. abused. Yeah. And if I were to take all of the images and stereotypes that I've collected over the years Someone would say, okay, I know who an abuser is. It's a bald guy on a broken concrete front porch, wearing a wife beater, holding a Budweiser, and he's got a pit bull chained up next to him. Like that's who we that's think. That's the stereotype. That's the stereotype of who we think might engage in these behaviors. But really, this is of no respecter of persons. It's of every socioeconomic status from the super wealthy to the super not Can you talk about how this is no respecter of persons? It can be found in every community, in every neighborhood. Well, there's a wonderful book called Not to People Like Us, Hidden Abuse in Upscale Marriages. And it really does help us understand that it does not matter the race, the income level, the zip code, the gender, Uh that happens in all types of relationships. And so what's really important is to understand there's a diagram called the power and control wheel. And that was developed and formalized in the 1980s by the Duluth Project up in Minnesota. And after interviewing hundreds of women about their experiences in their marriages and dating relationships, they realized there was a common theme or a pattern for what was happening. So it's an actual physical wheel. And on the outside spokes of the wheel are physical and sexual abuse. And the truth is, if someone hits you, if they kick you, if they pull your hair, you are going to recognize this is abuse. I should get help. You can mm-hmm. go to my court, get a restraining order. Mm-hmm. But many times there were other things happening for a long time that felt bad. We just didn't know to call them abusive. So intimidation. That is making someone afraid with looks, actions, or gestures. It's blocking the doorway during arguments so you can't leave. It's holding Mm -hmm. up a knife while we're chopping dinner. And you didn't lunge at me. You didn't threaten me with it. But that gesture of holding it up symbolized something. It might be abusing pets, smashing things, destroying things right next to you. So you don't actually have a physical injury, but it happened right next to you. Um, Another dynamic is emotional abuse. That's putting someone down, making them feel crazy, calling them names. Mm -hmm. Many of the people I work with would say that they would rather endure physical abuse than the emotional because it is painful and long lasting. Yeah. Isolation, controlling where you go, who you talk to, where you can be, wanting access to all of your accounts and passwords. This one's really important though, because When someone has been in an abusive relationship for a long period of time, every waking breath is about keeping the peace. So what can I do to keep the peace, keep the peace? And over time, I get disconnected or isolated from myself. That's capital S. So the self atrophies. And Mm -hmm. so much of therapy is about finding myself again. What are my hobbies, spiritual practices, values, beliefs? Um, and and I've got to find my way back to me once I'm safe mm-hmm. to do that. Minimizing, denying, and blaming is saying the abuse isn't that bad. It's your fault. You're crazy. It's all in your head. And every time I try to raise a concern, the topic is brought right back to my grievances against you. Putting children in the middle, this might be undermining the authority of one parent. 
um, threatening to take the kids. And listen, a lot of people do stay because of their children. Right. Some people leave because of the kids. Once the uh, once the children are reenacting the abusive behaviors or language, or they are witnessing the abuse, that's sometimes for some the line in the sand. But many times children are used. And you think about maybe a mom, for example, who she knows the look her partner gets when things are about to get ugly. She knows mm-hmm. when that eyebrow goes up or that lip starts twitching, it's mm-hmm. going to get ugly. And she quickly sends the kids to their room to do their homework or listen to some music. And she takes the brunt of it. Well, she knows, hey, if I go forward with a divorce, we may end up with a 70-30 split, a 50-50 split. Right. And now who's going to protect my 14-year-old daughter when my partner gets in that frame of mind? But if I stay in the home, at least I can be a buffer. And a couple more um, privilege is because of my gender, how much money I make or how I was raised, I am entitled to be the master of the castle, to make all the decisions, economic abuse limiting you from knowing about accounts or funds, saying that you have to provide receipts for everything you spend, and that's not reciprocal in the relationship, not allowing you to have access to money that's shared, and then finally coercion and threats. If you leave me, I will kill myself. Mm. Uh, I'll report you for this or that. I'll threaten to make you do illegal things. Um, I'll threaten to hurt someone that you care about, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the power and control wheel. And it is the framework for the what is happening in the relationship. What happens when someone has had enough and they call the refuge center and say, I need help? Well, it's a unique crime because the perpetrator and the victim live together. So that's very unique. Um, Generally, someone will not call until after the seventh time that they've been hurt or harmed. Uh By the time they make a call to Refuge Center or you guys, Stacey, or or Mercy Community Healthcare, wherever that may be, this has been going on for a while. So it's a really big deal for someone to reach out and ask for help. It's an even bigger deal to name it. You know, you -hmm. you might say, my partner's unkind, we're not getting along, but to Mm -hmm. be able to say, I'm in an abusive relationship, that's a huge Mm -hmm. step. And then tell me about the process of recovery. Like, what does it look like? Well, so one other thing I'll touch on before we talk about the healing process is something called the cycle of violence. So if the power and control wheel is A, cycle of violence is B. And I never introduced those separately. Those need to go together. Okay. And the cycle of violence basically says that all relationships start off in some kind of honeymoon or seduction phase. It feels good. It's the thing you've been waiting for your whole life. Yeah. The person asks the right questions. They want to be with you all the time. They're so interested in you. And generally, Mm -hmm. they're trying to get things to move very quickly. You were my girlfriend. Now we live together. And then I'm going to get a ring on that real quick, right? They're they're pushing and advancing for next steps because then they can justify controlling efforts. But at some point, it doesn't feel so good anymore. And sometimes that's six months into the relationship. It might be six years into the marriage. I have often heard women talk about it was on the honeymoon or right after we got home from the honeymoon. But then we enter what's called the tension building phase. Lundy Bancroft in his book, Why Does He Do That? He would say it's a period of increased criticism and complaints. It's the garden of resentments where my partner is toiling away at negative grievances against me and stockpiling them later to be used as weapons. Mm. But this is where 
you can tell your partner's unhappy. Yesterday, my dress was too short at church. Tomorrow, it's the kids are too grumpy at dinner. The day before, it's I looked at somebody the wrong way in that parking lot. But you know they're upset. You just Mm -hmm. can't ever figure out how to do it right and get it right enough to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. And then Unfortunately, it moves into violation or explosion. This is where promises are broken, outbursts occur, there's a confrontation, a release, an assault. Sometimes it's physical and sexual, and sometimes it's not. But unfortunately, we circle right back to honeymoon seduction and peacemaking. These are the spurts of kindness and generosity that hook you back into the cycle and make them feel better about what they did in the violation or explosion. So what we're looking for, when someone comes in and says, you know, I, I don't know if I'm in an abusive relationship. I might be. I would have them look at the power and control wheel and we'd assess how many of those things were happening in the relationship. But then we will look at the frequency and intensity of this cycle. Is it a pattern? Not a problem, not a one-time scenario, but is this a pattern? And the more often we go through it, it increases in frequency and intensity. It happens more often and it gets more intense. The the horrible thing about this cycle, you think about honeymoon seduction and you think about explosion, the rescuer and the tormentor are the same thing. They're the same person. And so it makes you feel absolutely crazy. Now Mm. you ask the question, what does recovery look like? I describe it as a three-legged stool. Okay. And the first leg is psychoeducation and safety planning. So in that phase, I'm teaching my clients a lot about the dynamics of what they've lived through. We're starting to call it what it is. We're reading books about domestic violence, support groups. We may be doing research online. We're just educating ourselves and we're creating a safety plan. How do I get physically and emotionally safe? So psychoeducation and safety planning. When it's safe enough, then we lead into trauma processing, and that may be EMDR or brain spotting, but we go back and reflect on what were the incidences that occurred that created the most distress for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I have had a number of women who it was um, more painful what he did to animals than what he did to her. So when you see cruelty against animals and children, that's going to significantly move someone up on a lethality scale. And then finally, once we're through the hard part, maybe there's been a separation, maybe the law has become involved, but once it is safe enough, we move into that third leg, which is uh, self-discovery. And these are a lot of in-session and out-of-session assignments that help me rediscover myself again. The values in action inventory, um, really fun artistic projects, uh, beginning to build new relationships, looking at the equality wheel. So there's a lot of things that are really fun to do in self-discovery. So those are typically the phases of recovery, at least in the way that I do the work. Can you talk about the effects of domestic violence on children? Mm -hmm. The best resource I know of is the National Traumatic Stress Network. Okay. They have sections on their site for how DV affects kids and what to look for at different ages uh, based on concerning signs that children are being affected. So things like nightmares, bedwetting, acting out at school, regressive behaviors, um, reenacting violence. And and there's a whole piece about that that's really important for kids and victims around repetition compulsion. 
and why we sometimes engage in the same behaviors that we've seen, even though we don't want to be that person, right? So I work at a shelter one evening a week. So you asked earlier about how I got into this work. In 2001, I started at the YW Domestic Violence Shelter, and I worked there for about four and a half years. And I worked the 3.30 to 11.30 shift, and then I ended up doing some aftercare. But I was there at night when women and kids were home, and it was loud and boisterous. And one of the things that I saw was sometimes those same control dynamics were being reenacted to establish a place of position or even try to determine safety within shelter. And we even saw some of the young boys talking to their moms the way that they had heard or sometimes Mm -hmm. physically the way they had seen, because it is a learned behavior. There Mm -hmm. is a template for this is how I get what I need. This is how I behave to get my needs met and to, uh, uh, you know, get priority in this situation. And so that's a really hard thing to see. You know, I went on to start the refuge center, but I love being in the shelter environment. People are coming in very raw, just out of practice. And so for the last 14 years, I have served one evening per week at the local domestic violence center. It's called Bridges here in Williamson County. And I provide free therapy to the women there. So just really, you know, have stayed neck deep in it my whole career. For perpetrators that realize that their behavior is unacceptable, where do they begin? So there's some reasons why we don't see great results in determining an outcome that's positive for both parties. Um, If you think about the way that the cycle works, this person, the aggressor or the abuser, they get their way when it matters most. I get what I want, when I want, how I want it. Everybody does a dance around me to keep me happy so they don't get hurt. My needs take priority and I get public status without sacrifice. And so the process of going back and learning where did I pick up these behaviors, probably somewhere in family of origin. Right. Differentiating from that system or those behaviors and relinquishing my entitlements That is a very long and hard process. Now, there are some great options. There are groups, um, the RSVP model, Emerge, and Man Alive. For example, Man Alive is a 52-week program divided into three parts. The first part is getting someone to be accountable for their violence. The third part gives them a set of skills that are alternatives to violence. And the third teaches them strategies to create intimacy and fulfillment. But the relinquishing of the entitlements and statistically, you know, just a nominal number of people are willing to do that and make changes in the long run. But for those of those, for those that are humble enough to ask for help. Yeah. So locally, we have a program called Choices. Kelly Connison, okay. she's affiliated with Bridges. And that is a group setting. There's a curriculum and they are working their way through a process of accountability. So one activity would be perspective taking and they might go back and write about that argument or that fight, but from their partner's perspective and how it felt to them. So there needs to be a high level of accountability, whether it's a group or a therapist, they are probably talking to your partner to see if things are actually going well at home consistently. 
Lundy Bancroft in his book, Why Does He Do That? He tells a story around page 330 about a man who cut down his neighbor's tree and the process of amends to that neighbor. And what he goes into after this metaphorical story is a checklist of how do I know if my partner's really changing? If it's Mm. not just honeymoon seduction, peacemaking, but it's real lasting change. And I can walk with clients through that list over time to determine if the change is real. Amy, do you have any success stories in your head or is it kind of a process of untangling and two people rebuilding their lives in a new way where they're not really coming back together? I guess it depends on how I or the client would define success. Sure. Um, I have to be really careful that my success as a therapist is not based on the outcome that if they leave and they start their life over, then I was successful. And if they stay, I was a failure. You know, our clients have been in a relationship where they were told what to think, what to feel and what to do. And then they go find a counselor or a pastor or a friend. And with the very best of intentions, those people tell them what to think, what to feel and what to do. Mm-hmm. And unintentionally, they've re-victimized the person. My client probably will leave because I'm just another person of power that they want to acquiesce and and impress. And so I have to be very mindful that it's not my definition of success, it's theirs on their timeline. Now, most people reach a point where they wake up one day and they say, I want to live and I don't want to live like this anymore. And Mm -hmm. on that day, they are ready to do something different, as scary as the future might look. But most frequently, because We don't see high levels of change or amends uh, among the partner who's been abusive. Most frequently, we do see that eventually the partner leaves. I can think of probably two times in 21 years that I've worked with someone who stayed and the partner put themselves in a position of frequent accountability and things improved to some degree, Um, not entirely, but to some degree, but it's it's limited. And, you know, one thing I wanted to mention is we think about why does this happen the way that it does and how do we know if change is happening? Well, some people have said, if my partner would just do a 16 week anger management class, they would learn Mm -hmm. to take deep breaths and walk away and write in their journal, or they really only get violent when they're drunk. So if they would go out and do a 28 day course at Cumberland Heights, get sober, they wouldn't treat me this way anymore. But what we know in this field, and this is so important, is that this is driven by someone's values and their belief systems. And if at core, I believe it's okay to belittle the person I love, to control the person I love, to make decisions for them, to put them down, to put my hands on them. If those are my values and beliefs, then I can learn to journal. I can take deep breaths. I can be sober. But ultimately, the undercurrent of my behaviors will remain the same. That makes me so sad, Amy. Mm-hmm. It is sad. You know, it just it makes me wonder if this is part of the reason why it's not talked about much because it just feels kind of hopeless a little bit. 
you know, when you sit and think about it. But the, when I said success, what I'm really talking about is empowerment, not necessarily the success of the relationship. Mm-hmm. What does empowerment look like for these women that decide to leave and live their own lives and start over? Can you talk about that for just a second? Well, I think empowerment happens whether they decide to leave or stay. I mean, my what I say is I judge success in millimeters. So mm. if someone leaves my office a little bit more informed about what they've been living through, if they leave my office a tiny bit stronger and braver, that today when the fight starts, I'm going to go sit in my car you know, and pull out of the garage and drive around sure. the neighborhood for five minutes. If I can make small steps towards believing that I am worth more than being treated this way, and I can set boundaries that don't put me in danger, those are successes. And that uh-huh. is a point of empowerment. Now it's up to my client to tell me what their goal is for therapy. And for some of them, it is to stay in the marriage until the kids are gone or, or maybe right. So it would be important to me to align with their goals while also providing education and safety resources. What does it look like to support someone going through this? I love a good metaphor. And I tried to think for so long about what it's like to be a therapist doing this work. And I will tell you, it's not for everybody. What I learned is that if you've ever watched a boxing match, You'll hear the bell ring and these two boxers, they come into the ring and they go at it and they fight and there's blood and sweat. And then the bell rings and they have to tap out. They have to sit in their corners. And there's a guy called a cutter that jumps in the ring and that cutter, he puts on an ice pack and he's taping up this elbow and he's wiping off the sweat. And then the bell rings and they go back in. And sometimes, especially in the beginning, as the therapist, you feel like the cutter, you feel like for 50 minutes a week, your client steps out of the ring and you are helping to wash off blood and sweat and put an ice pack on it. But then wow, Amy, that's minutes, so good. they go back into the ring. And so, boy, especially early in the career for therapists working in this field, it's easy to worry about your clients in between yeah. sessions to fear for their safety. But I can say after 21 plus years doing this, many people reach a point where they are going to stand up for themselves. And I've seen it again and again and again and again. And because I can now trust the process, it's not something I read in a book. I've seen it so many times. I trust the process. I can give my clients a lot of space to find their way there without so much fear. Mm -hmm. Amy, can you talk about the Refuge Center, your vision for it? I'm so proud of you. This huge building fund that you've embarked upon and how we can kind of rally around you and support the work that you've started. Thank you so much. Yeah. So Jennifer Thames and I started Refuge Center in 2005. We were just finishing the master's program at Trevecca Nazarene University. At the time, there were lots of awesome private practice clinicians in our community, but not everybody could afford that. Also wonderful nonprofits that just um, did kind of niche specific work. So one did eating disorders, one did kids, one took 10 care, but there wasn't really a place that served the whole family on a sliding Mm -hmm. scale back in 05. So we opened with the heart of 
let's make therapy affordable and accessible to anyone, no matter what their circumstances. And let's make it great. Let's Mm -hmm. break out of those nonprofit stereotypes and have a warm, welcoming facility, cutting edge technologies and modalities, well-trained clinicians, a wonderful culture and pair all that with a signing fee scale that's affordable. So we, um, Fast forward, right? So we now have about 70 therapists. We have 85 people on staff. We provide 37,000 counseling sessions per year to close to 5,000 individuals and families across 17 counties in Tennessee. Our sliding fee scale goes as low as $19. The highest is $125, but on average, our clients pay about $55 per appointment. And we offer things like EMDR, brain spotting, TBRI, PCIT, neurofeedback, yeah. all that. Um, and again, no matter who you are, what zip code you live in, what your job title is, what's been done to you or what you've done when you come to refuge, you do deserve a shot at the very best access to care and healing. So because of the growth and demand, about 10 years ago, we started looking for land Five and a half years later, plus we purchased seven acres of land on Long Lane. It's sort of near the Ag Center or even where Dave Ramsey's new corporate headquarters is. Uh We still have a lot of money to raise. It's a $12.7 million capital campaign. We've raised 5.5, but we're ready to do the site work. And it'll allow us to double the amount of kids and teens we serve and provide care to 90 more families every week. For those that are listening that know nothing about the Refuge Center, how would they reach you if they want to support the Refuge? How would they find that information? Yeah. So refugecenter.org is our website. On the top right corner, there's a button that says donate now, and you can give to offsetting client scholarship funds because we do have to raise a million dollars every year just to have the sliding fee scale. Mm-hmm. Or you could select the Fishes and Loaves or Capital Campaign to help us create our new facility. Um, on the website, you will see there's a link to attend a connections lunch. So twice a month, we offer a one hour luncheon. You tour our facility, meet our staff, watch a client story video, and learn a little bit about the work. Or Hope Grows, that's our annual fundraiser. A fourth of what we have to raise, we need to do that in one night every year. And we'll be sharing client stories. And we'd love for anyone to come out, be a table sponsor, et cetera. And if someone's listening right in the middle of a domestic violence situation, what would you say to her? And I would not doubt that that's a reality because the statistics are about one in four women will experience physical or sexual abuse in her lifetime and one in seven men. So even when I teach in a classroom of 20, the reality is that, you know, several have been through this. It's a part of my story from my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I would say that you are worth more than being hurt. You don't deserve this, even though your partner probably tells you that you do. You don't deserve this. There are options for you. It's unacceptable to be treated this way. Um, And there's a path forward and you can get help. Amy, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Families podcast. Please subscribe to our feed and share this with your family and friends.